popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. So, the webinar's started. Yeah. We've got... Ah, Natalie's with us. Hi, Natalie. What, what Natalie doesn't understand, Jess, is this is an AMA for Phil, but Phil quite often <laughs> diverts the question to everyone who's attending. <laughs> So you're warning Natalie to be prepared. I'm, I am, yeah. Phil, if you're happy, why yeah. don't we why don't we get started? That sounds good. Okay. So uh thank you everyone for joining. And thank you anyone that is listening to this. Um just whilst we are waiting for people to join in, please uh Put in chat where you're from and what you would like to discuss today. And as always, this is a great opportunity to put Phil Squire, the CEO of Consalia, um, under a bit of pressure and to leverage his knowledge of all things sales related. I think um, this is your favorite thing of the month, isn't it, Will? I do enjoy it. I do. <laughs> um, we've only got one announcement that... My colleague, Eddie, is making sure I announce. Um, we were so thrilled with those who attended and contributed to the discussion at our Leading Sales Transformation Masterclass with Axel Ferrioles, all around the topic of transformation. And I just wanted to announce that we got another one lined up. Um, this will be with Grant Van Albrecht. He is also a master. He's done the Leading Sales Transformation uh, Masters. He's gone on to do the ILM in Coaching for Sales Transformation and continued on to do a doctorate in uh, change management. But uh, Grant will be doing a masterclass in change management on the 31st of July. Um, so... If you're interested, do let us know. I know Eddie will be providing further details, um, but these are really exciting sessions where um, we focus on a topic, an area in sales leadership, and we get our alumni to run a masterclass session on it. And they're very interactive, very engaging. So I highly recommend people join. Plus you get a you get a sense of what happens in our master's programs. Anyway, I digress. Uh, let's not waste any more time and get straight into it. Um, so we've been sent a couple of questions through to us via email. Um, so we'll get round to those. But if anyone else has any questions in chat or uh, just let us know and I'll make sure Phil addresses it. Uh, Natalie, this is a brilliant opportunity for you to, um, to kind of put Phil under the spotlight. And I can see that Ian Jones has joined us again from South Africa. So welcome in and thank you so much. And thanks for the question you sent us because it's really helpful 
um, to get them in advance. So why don't we start with Ian's question? Actually? I think it's a good um, idea. <laughs> yeah. So Ian wrote in and said, many sales leaders have been addressing the problem of their salespeople failing to make targets. They've been trying to solve the problem by several methods over a long time with little or no success. A cynical attitude is in evidence and suggests that the problem cannot be solved in the current time frame for a variety of reasons. Is there a proof of the Consalia concept that you would recommend that is relatively quick and inexpensive to implement? So, uh, yeah, Ian, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for your, for, for that question. It's a, it's a really great question to ask. And I think the, the first bit of the question is perhaps worth reflecting on, which is this comment about failing to meet to make targets. And I think it'd be interesting for us to talk about, you know, what the percentages actually look look like, you know, before I maybe move on to the second part of the question. You know, so the, the question I think we should look at first of all is, or check the validity of the statement about failing to meet targets is what percentage of salespeople in a selling organization meet targets and what percentage don't because that you know if we if we disagree with what the figures are then you know that's going to influence the second half of of the statement um but the data that we've got on this topic is that over 60% of salespeople fail to meet targets on uh, an annual basis um, and one of the interesting aspects of this particular statistic is that um, with the same organizations, this is something that happens year in, year out. Um, and that would potentially suggest that they build into their planning process the assumption that 60% of salespeople are going to fail you know, to reach targets. Therefore, that assumption drives the number of people that they need to recruit into sales to meet targets uh, because the same companies have a have a knack of kind of just about reaching their targets year in year out you know, um so i think that's that's interesting so i suppose it, it would be a a question that i could you know sort of put back to ian who asked the question at this stage is what Ian's experience has been in this particular area. I don't know if Ian is, is happy to kind of share his point of view on that. Yeah. Hi, Phil. Um, Hi, Ian. Absolutely happy to do that. Um, we, we have a couple of organisations that I know about here in South Africa who have been doing what I've described. They've been trying to address this problem that the majority of their salespeople aren't making target. Uh, and they've tried a variety of methodologies, including the one that you just talked about of hiring mm -hmm. more salespeople in the mistaken belief that if you can spread the uh, organization's target over more people, there is a greater possibility of the overall target being achieved. Yeah. And and, and it seems as though, certainly in the two cases that I've got in mind, uh, a, a cynicism to the point of saying, right, we're going to build into our targets for 20, sorry, into our budgets for 2023. The reality that only 40% of our salespeople are going to make target and somewhere around 60% uh, are going to be between... 20 and 30 percent short uh, and we'll, we'll just acknowledge that that is a fact going mm. forward so our forecasting will uh, reflect the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in and, and we tried so many remedies say they to this situation that maybe it's because of coming back out of lockdown maybe they've got a variety of reasons that they're conjuring with uh, as to why this thing seems to be so intractable, which is what mm. led me to the question that says, is there any way that 
we could prove the Consalia concept uh, in a way that isn't going to take them an enormous amount of time and a great deal of money so that they would be drawn into persuading themselves that there was a solution uh, to yeah. the problem that they confront. Yeah, do, do, you, uh, do you mind if I just come on to that, that last question um, just a little bit, a bit later? Um, sure. Because I think the implications of, of, um, you know the stats as we see them, and and you've sort of confirmed similar experiences in in South Af Africa. Um, is quite significant in terms of, you know, what does what does this approach do for the general, you know, sort of morale and motivation of a sales organisation, when yeah. so many of the sales organisations sort of fail fail to reach their their targets, or is is it in the psyche of salespeople that that um, this uh, this fear of failure to reach target actually spurs more effort into producing sales results, therefore more more sort of likelihood um, that they'll they'll reach targets? I'm not I'm not sure, but it, but 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 um, I I think it'd be interesting to perhaps have Natalie's point of view on this as well, Natalie, if you don't mind. Kind of sharing what some of your experiences have been uh, in a sales enablement role in your previous companies. Um, you know what what percentage figures did did you or have you experienced with the organisations that you've worked for, Natalie, in terms of attainment of sales targets? Um, so I think probably the last couple of organisations I've worked in, it's been around. I would say probably the 60% mark. Okay. Um, and I think there's always been a consistent sort of challenge um, in getting the sales reps to really adhere to the best practices, you know, sharing what it is that we've observed that's worked and really getting them to implement mm. those things. And that even though sometimes you might not think it's, uh, or it doesn't seem like, um, rocket science some of the time um it does still seem that salespeople tend to fall into the the same old bad habits maybe mm -hmm. um and there is that need for the that continual repetition um to try and get them to, yeah. to you know to do those things that we know that that work yeah so that's still whether it's 60 or 40 it's still there's still high you know a high percentage of salespeople who from your experience as well, um, uh, sort of don't, you know, uh, don't reach their targets. And no. I mean, so some of it, you know, it, it is based on, on let's talk about incentives for a bit. I know we've spoken on this topic um, sort of earlier on, but if you've got a sales manager who's targeted on achieving a certain figure and he achieves that through, you know, 10, 10, let's say 10 people that report into him. And he achieves that target with four people. You, you know, does he really care about what, what happens to the other six? Um, so quite a number of systems that I've seen, and this is back to your question, Ian, about, um, you know, is there a proof of the Consalia concept that we would recommend? Um, is, could there be... Um, you know, could one look at the way in which sales leaders are remunerated so that their remuneration is based on the numbers, percentage-wise, numbers of salespeople who hit or exceed quota rather than the figure in its own right? Um, so I think that, you know, that I know that that question has sometimes come up in conversations we've had with clients is that, you know, would you drive a better balanced performance if the way that the sales managers are incentivized is based on, you know, percentage of team who meet quota rather than, you know, just a, you know, a simple revenue or, or, or gross profit quota? I don't know, Ian, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, whether these companies have have got such systems that reward sales leaders in the way that I've just described or is your experience that sales leaders tend to be kind of remunerated on 
one figure and, and the companies don't really care about how that figure's arrived at as long as you hit the figure. Yeah, I I, I think that that latter, that latter form of um, remuneration is prevalent in South Africa. Um, yeah. What is starting to happen now, of course, is that the organization's ability to meet target is being impacted. Yeah. So instead of the organization meeting target, it sort of meets 80% of the target. And, and that sort of winds up being a, a contest between executive management and sales management, where sales management is saying, you are placing unrealistic targets on us. Uh, and executive management say, well, whether they seem reasonable to you or not, this is what the business requires. And, and it sort of continues to be that um, non-resolving nature of discussion between executive management and sales management. And I was wondering, Phil, if the reality is not to be, in terms of fixing the problem, is not to be found in some research that I know you have already done. Yeah. That, that 90% of salespeople are not attractive to their customers. Now, I'm wondering whether if that issue were effectively addressed, uh, it might have a relatively short-term improvement uh, in the numbers. Um, yeah, no, thank you for kind of referring to the uh, to the research um, that that we've done, I th and I think that could definitely sort of um, play into this. Is is there a relatively quick and inexpensive way to implement some sort of change in sales performance? But I I just want to come back to the management angle to begin with because I think so so many of these uh, these issues that are to do not not just with the mindset of the selling organization but the mindset of the manager and um we we have got examples of some of our students who have inherited um a poor performing sales teams selling in a market which is tough and where the performance across all of the salespeople have um, not only exceeded target, but exceeded target by a percentage that enables those salespeople to go to winner's circle. Um, and this has been achieved. And this this is maybe may part of the answer that we could you know, sort of talk about in terms of this proof of concept. This has been achieved by a sales leader who has an absolute passion about the way that they want to be recognized as a leader. So they want to be recognized as a leader, not just by getting one person uh, in the team, you know, sort of hitting the sales targets to achieve, you know, his overall team target, but every single person in the team doing the same. So they do not regard themselves as a great leader unless all the people cross the line. And hopefully some of those people crossing the line extraordinarily well. Um, so I think I think a lot of it starts with um you know with with vision, you know, the vision of of the sales leader. And then I think it's it's linked to a topic um that I know, Ian, that you're really passionate about, which is coaching. And it's actually looking at you know how it's having a, a again a frame of mind and a mindset driven around recognizing people's potential and then having a powerful coaching concept methodology in order to coach the individuals through all of the different activities needed to um you know to maximize sales performance so this combination of a personal vision coupled with with coaching support and ability um, are two incredibly important factors at uh, at a management level. And then I think uh, you mentioned 
uh, Ian, the, the the research that that we've done around selling mindsets. I mean, we've we've seen some extraordinary uh, improvements in performance by salespeople adopting, you know, the four winning mindsets as we've defined it, um, and over a period of time, depending on the sales cycle of the client, you know, producing extraordinary performance, whether it's in a quarter or whether it's over a, a two-year period. Um, so, yes, I mean, we would, obviously, we would we would recommend a culture in a sales organization that's built around the four differentiating mindsets of authenticity, client-centricity, proactive creativity, and tactful audacity, coupled with a manager who has a vision to really want every single person in the team you know, to perform well with exceptional coaching skills. I think that combination is a is an ideal combination to maximize performance and hopefully sort of increase the stats in favor of, you know, 100% of salespeople meeting quota. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we have got evidence. We have got published case studies to that effect. Do I see Will about to ask a question? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I was going to, I was just going to, because I, I I know the sort of case study you're talking about, um, yeah. and one of the approaches the sales leader took was he spent a, a quite a bit of time uh, researching where the activity of his sales team was being spent, um, and he was and I think Phil, I was going to ask you the question around the importance of understanding what are the activities that um, contribute towards a uh, healthy pipeline? Um, because that's, yeah, that's also something this sales leader did. Yeah, he um, did maybe... such a great job on it. And it's it's interesting when things aren't going well, uh, you said you, you tend to go down to the sort of, you know, what's the root cause of, you know, why is it that we're not actually sort of hitting targets and so so in the absence of results you can't look at results you you simply got to look at well what is the team doing and yes he did a, a lot of quite sort of forensic work in asking the you know the sort of sales team to track the activities that they were doing and to whom and you know are they are you know you know, what level of the organization are these people kind of selling to? Um, what kind of discussions are going on with the people that they have been meeting? And what were the outcomes of those discussions? So his conversations were very much based on what did you do? Who did you do it with? And what was the outcome? So there were just three simple things that he asked each of the salespeople day in, week out in order to understand the correlation between activity and result. Uh, so he wasn't in- interested in results. Well, results weren't there. He was simply focused on the what we refer to as leading indicators uh, that, that would lead to results later. Um, so this kind of analysis of activity was another um, yeah, thanks for raising the question. Well, or the point was another factor that 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 he looked at Be, uh, because it linked very much with coaching. How do you know how to coach people? You know, when you don't have a deep understanding of what it is that they do. And we often find when we are talking to sales managers on the um, on the masters programs that we run is they when they start to talk about uh, sort of the cadence of coaching, you know, that, and is very much linked to sort of quarterly pipeline and they very much get all forecasts and perhaps pipeline forecast, meaning what do they forecast in current quarter versus pipeline maybe more future looking, but it's quite clear that the majority of conversations that take place is around, um, what we would call lagging indicators. And I think this is a big mistake um, and leads to the fact that 
um, people lose sight of what it is they need to do to generate results. They get fixated on the performance. But in a way, you know, you, you can't blame the sales managers, you know, about doing this because they get pushed and shoveled around performance all the time by, by their senior execs. So they're, they're given, if you like, um, you know, the culture of the organization and the things that get discussed at those sort of QBR meetings are so results orientated that there's no real emphasis in, 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 in looking at, at what it is that drives results. So I don't know if I've rambled on a bit. Um, so yeah, Ian, I think it's a combination of of the selling mindsets that we've got so much evidence to show that if salespeople adopt these selling mindsets, um, they will be in what we've, we've called the winner's circle and, you know, much higher probabilities of of closing opportunities. But I, I don't think we can underestimate either the the importance of the role of the sales manager and the sales leadership, you know, to provide the right coaching support for them as well. And it's also providing the right space for innovation and to take risk and to um, have that supportive element from the leadership. Because if you're doing the same thing over and over again and not getting the results, then perhaps you need to find new ways to innovate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's, um, yeah, really, really important to encourage that psychological safety, you know, for yeah. people to experiment and try new things out. I remember we had one of the stories that I really love is we had some a group of um, managers going on the sales transformation masters program, and and one of the managers uh, he was based in Colombia, um, and he was confronted with a big challenge he worked for Sony mobile. Um, of course they had a huge amount of competition from, um, the other handset suppliers and the, um, regulators in Colombia were trying to block the sale of smartphones, uh, because they felt that economically it, it wasn't good for the country. And uh, they wanted to make the accessibility of smartphones more, you know, the lower end handsets um, so that, you know, more of the population could buy them. And this would have had a disastrous effect on the uh, Sony market share. And um, so what what he did, um, and this, this happened within a three-month period, was he adopted the proactive creativity and tactful audacity mindset. And he went back to the regulators and he challenged them on the logic of the regulations that they were about um, to implement, you know, throughout the country. It took a lot of courage to be able to go to the regulators and say, hang, hang on, I think you've may have made a mistake here. You know, can I have some of your time to, to rethink this? And he'd done a lot of work on looking at the um, economic ROI and such that the regulators agreed that they wouldn't block this, the um, sale of high-end smartphones. And as these conversations were going on with, um, with Sony and the regulators, Sony preempted the fact that they would not introduce this legislation and that the market would be open for the sale of these smartphone handsets. So they stocked up, they had the stock ready, they entered the Christmas period, where which is the biggest, uh, the biggest opportunity for handset sales is over the Christmas period. And um, and the other handset manufacturers had had depleted their stock of handsets, so they didn't have any stock or much less stock. And within the space of two or three months, um, Sony increased their market share in Colombia from something like eight to seventeen percent. And this was done 
based on taking those mindsets that we know so much about of tactful audacity and proactive creativity and implementing it in a, in a, in a sales approach. Um, but I love the story because of its, uh, you know, innovation, inventiveness, courage, and, uh, and of course, business impact was amazing. Yep. And of course it's been published in the journal of sales transformation. Mm -hmm. Great, Ian. I'm I'm just wondering if if Phil's answered your question, or if you have any other questions for him. Uh, no, I I think Will that uh, Phil has given me a very comprehensive uh, exposure on what you guys have found that that works, and I'm sure that the elements that he's outlined are the ones that need attention. And it so inspired me that I'd like to put together a kind of a straw man uh, suggestion based upon the information that he's given this afternoon. Uh, and maybe that's something that uh, offline mm. uh, I and you guys could work on going forward. Yeah, that would absolutely. be brilliant. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. We'd love that. Okay. I don't know Thanks. if Natalie has got any, any more comments to add or any observations. Or any questions. Or any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a question at the moment. Um, I thought it was interesting what you were saying actually about the the teams and whether and whether you know all of the teams should be performing and hitting a quota for the sales managers and leaders to be you know really um, feeling like they're succeeding. And that's something from the sales enablement perspective um, that we I always saw as very important, actually, is how do you upskill everybody mm. in the team rather than just those uh, top performers um, so that you can help make the whole team more effective. Um, mm. So I know that that was something I definitely always had in, in my mind is what how can we what can we do from an enablement perspective to to make sure that we are upskilling that the, the performance of the whole uh, team um, and also that focus on the frontline managers um, mm. you know how important that is in terms of really enabling them and giving them the coaching skills that they need um, to be able to pass that on to their teams and that I think is something that I've observed is becoming much more important um, in the you know senior exec's mind is you know how can we make sure that our frontline managers are really ready to to step up into that coaching role, um, especially where they've come maybe from you know they've been promoted up through the individual contribute mm. from individual contributors mm. up into that next role of manager, um, and you know as we know they're very different skill sets needed for those two roles. So how how can they really develop? Um, those managers when they get into that role to make sure that they can do their jobs effectively um, and also that they're developing them then as well uh, to stay within the company and to grow you know and do what they want to do in their next uh, career mm -hmm. steps um, so I think yeah it's valuable for all around really to make sure that those those managers have the the um, coaching and development that they need. I mean there's some interesting research by you know sort of by Gartner on on the amount of time that that managers spend coaching and they sort of segregated star managers versus sort of average managers in in their analysis and one of the things that they found was um both these groups of managers tend to spend the same amount of time actually coaching um but what what is different between the two is that the star managers spend their time differently to mm -hmm. Um, the average managers and the area that they they spend more time in in coaching is around early stage sales development you know sales opportunities um and uh you know if we're looking at more sort of deal specific type coaching um and as well as late stage and I, I and this has always struck a note with me because I remember doing, one of our interviews of customers about um, well, we're, we're interviewing the customers of our customer about what they like and dislike about sales approach approaches. And one of our, one of the people that we interviewed said, uh, you know, they, they really dislike it when managers come in at the end of a deal 
to get what they said, the glory of closing the deal and to, you know, negotiate. And they could go back to the office talking about you know, how how he, oh, sorry, they won the opportunity and uh, sort of in a way usurping the um, the authority of the salesperson in that respect in terms of what they, they can and, and cannot do in the negotiation. But the, the, um, the, 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 yeah. So, so I think, I think coaching is, is such an important sort of area. And so when you break it down into, okay, well, coaching is one thing, but what type of coaching is important? Um, and, um, you know, so much of what we do here at Consalia is sort of, is, is, is exploring around, you know, coaching to the mindsets. How can you, how can you coach people such that the sales team have the kind of what what we know to be the winning mindsets for uh, being 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 successful? Because I think if if the mindsets are in the right place, it's amazing what you can do on the back of that. Um, so yeah, thanks for for talking about coaching. I think that's that's really important. And just when you were talking about the sales process there. Um, so with my last company I worked at was really where they were struggling to progress was really in that discovery phase. Um, yeah. So I think that was a continual area for support and coaching from enablement and also for the managers on, you know, really doing that part effectively. Um, and again, I think that just comes up time and time again, doesn't it? And maybe how you can apply those mindsets to your discovery process um, to really make sure that you are, doing it as effectively as possible. But that was uh, something that the data definitely backed up was that it just wasn't being done as thoroughly um, okay. as it needed to be to progress on to the next yeah. stage. Great. Mm. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Yeah. Thank mm. you. So, Phil, I'm, I'm now digging into our archive because we've had questions in the past that we haven't had the time to address. Um, so, uh, this one is around, uh, transformation. So how long does it typically take to transform a sales force? My Blimey. organization wants, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a meaty one. Um, my organization wants results, but may not necessarily have the patience to transform. How would you approach this conversation with the executive team? I think it. A lot of it depends on the size of the organization because there's no there's no question that the, the you know the larger the organization um you know the bigger the challenge there is in achieving transformation and you know the bigger a company gets the more the less agile they become even though that we know how important agility is in in today's marketplace um and I think we've talked on these um AMA sessions before about what percentage of people do you need to have in an in an organization that um uh that is behind a transformative idea and have totally bought into it. And you know, McKinsey have come out with this seven percent figure, which is quite interesting. Um and um so so I think it depends you know, a little bit on, yeah, on, on, on the size of the organization. Um, we have got examples of people who have needed to affect a complete transformation of the sales force, you know, with teams of around um, 30, 45 people, you know, with with uh, a number of field sales managers reporting into them, and then, and um, we have seen transformation taking place over a ninety day period. Um, and the difficulty with with transformation, or what makes it a challenge, is that before you can really get into any kind of specific actions that take place if you like um is you need to win hearts and minds and in, unless you win the hearts and minds of the sales team around a, a a different way of approaching the marketplace there's very little you can do you know 
the, the team won't transform. They'll go back to business as usual. So the critical thing is winning heart, hearts and minds around, you know, the purpose of the organization, you know, um, a very clear idea about exactly, you know, what it is you're asking the teams to do and, and why is that called transformation and not uh and not change mm -hmm. um so assuming that the transformation is is required then um you know at an at an individual level i think it can happen quite quickly but as a as a team level it 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 really depends on on its size um, now, I've seen situations where uh, sort of organizations might have a sales force of two or three thousand um, and they've got pockets of teams inside that organization who are clearly transforming and where the results of those pockets of the organization are being recognized inside the organization for having transformed. Yet trying to scale that from the two or three hundreds to the two or three thousands, you know, does take time. Um, so I think it it's a question of size and perhaps urgency. You know, perhaps it's the compelling, you know, it's it if you've got a compelling event that suggests you know, you've absolutely got to change or else the company's going to go bust or whatever it might be, um, then you're going to have people far more receptive to the idea of transformation than not. Mm. Um, but even so, even with that compelling need for change, I mean, look at Nokia. You know, they had 45% of the handset market and then, uh, and then they lost that 45%. I think they have maybe two or three percent now you know have they been able to change well they knew it was they knew the the avalanche was coming but they weren't able to affect transformation uh, it's very difficult to actually change deeply embedded systems uh, quickly so I, I think that's a it's a it depends answer will which is not very maybe helpful maybe you could um touch on winning hearts and minds and um what's the no maybe maybe less of a transformation but if you as a manager say want to um want to implement change winning hearts and minds is is quite tricky and i'm wondering through your experience how you would have gone around winning hearts and minds to embed sort of behavioral change? I mean, I think it has to be, you know, to um, some extent a collab, well, it has to a large extent be a collaborative process. And it typically starts in, in sort of cotter fashion in a way where you've got a number of people in a, in a quote, guiding coalition who've, who've come together to, um, you know, to talk about the requirement for transformation and and can see that it's much needed. And um, between those um, limited number of people to define a process to win the hearts and minds of of the others um, in, in inside the organization. Um, and I, I use the, the word collaborative because if you go in with a, this is what I think we need to do to transform and, you know, with this team of two others, let's say, that you've got behind that vision, I think you could sort of run into a, a sort of slightly cynical um, pushback from the others in the organization. Um, I think what's 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 interesting is that you sometimes see a a time lag um, between the you know what might be a perfectly good transitional strategy and the execution in the field because of the 
underestimation of the time it takes to actually bring people with you. Um, so we've, you know, one of the techniques we've seen people use to win hearts and minds is something we call appreciative inquiry. And it's a very positive way of actually dream designing uh, and, and then implementing a, a, a particular sort of course of, um, you know, sort of creating a new destiny, designing a new system to fulfill the destiny, you know, towards building a, a course of action. And, and this is very energizing. And it's something that, that, that we often recommend people who, who want to go through this journey of, of transformation. Uh, so it's Cooper Ryder, who is the author of um, Appreciative Inquiry. It's just a fantastic, very simple framework for actually getting people to come together and to, um, uh, to create a future state, uh, building on the best of what is best. So it's a, it's a very nice way of looking at sort of problem solving, but it does win hearts and minds in a very positive way. Um, so, yes, there are various tools and techniques that one could use to actually help an organization structure a process towards transformational change. Great. Thank you. Um, and I, one last question. OK, I you've been under the spotlight. Enough. I have. Yeah, I seem to have done um, slightly more talking on this one than previous. I know. I know. Uh, but, yeah, you'll be relieved to know it's just one more question. And it's... Um, 73% of millennials are now reported to have decision-making responsibilities. How should salespeople adapt their selling practices for this new generation? Yes, it's very interesting because uh, when, when when we spoke about this sort of slightly early on today, I think, you know, what do I think about that? And it's sort of making me feel very old, you know, when we start to define which is the uh, age, age bracket. And that, I, I was actually... Um, you know, there's an awful lot of data, isn't there, coming out now about about this particular genre of decision making process and their sort of preferences are not to uh, sort of they like to do a lot of their own research. They don't want so much engagement um, with with sellers. And I think for a lot of transactions, which are transactions or transactional sales. Um, this this may be true. This is this is where kind of sales is is heading. But for the complex sale, um, it's important, you know, for both the supplier and the buyers to um, to get together. Um, and I think millennials who are not used to this notion of collaboration, partnership. Um, if if they're not used to um, this notion of exploring innovation through the suppliers that they have, are kind of missing a trick. Um, and you know the projects may fail as a as a consequence of that. But I, I may be a bit old fashioned in in my thinking on this. Well, but I think the world is moving so fast and so quickly that that no one has the answers. And I, I think that it's it's kind of, in a way, sort of the, the millennial question suggests that the millennial know what the right answer is uh, to a particular problem that they've got. And they're going out and sort of doing the research to, you know, to validate their hypothesis. And this runs a risk of the innovation you can get through a much more partner-orientated dialogue with salespeople. Um, but I may be showing my age here, Will, and I may be wrong in what I've just shared with you, but this is my sense. I mean, time will tell, I think. Time will the, tell. Uh, is the yeah. answer. Um, but I think the but pandemic, yes, I, mean, I mean, I I think that also, just to, to sort of carry on, I, I'm finding myself hearing more and more people talking about the need for face-to-face um, -face meetings and that we still haven't got over this sort of pandemic-induced not seeing customers or not seeing or customers not seeing potential suppliers. 
And there's no doubt that, you know, with all the Zoom technology we have and Teams technology, you know, we can be more productive, you know, by not spending so much time traveling. Um, but in spite of that, we're still getting people regretting the fact that they're not spending enough face-to-face -face time with customers as well. So that's just an observation. This is not based on any scientific research apart from us talking to hundreds of salespeople um, and also uh, to customers about similar topics. I'll just add to add to that. That's um doesn't regardless of the generational dynamic, um, we're all humans at the end of the day and we all enjoy social interact interaction. Absolutely. And it's um yeah. far more fun creating relationships with your customers and potentially other sellers. Um that you know, we should be advocates of, you know, connecting and um seeing each other face to face and you know, utilizing all the channels at our disposal at the moment. So what about setting up a, a sales performance system which rewards the um, amount of money salespeople are spending on client lunches? How how do you see that working? Well, say we're going to pay you a commission, yeah, for... Um, plus a free lunch. Yeah, plus a free lunch. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. Yeah. So, so is this is this some of the innovation that we might see in in sales performance systems? I'm not sure what Natalie would make of that <laughs> at all, but you know, great idea. You think it's a good idea? I do yeah, think it's a are. good idea, but and I think people, you know, I think it is about that balance, isn't it? That more people, that people are starting to get back out there and having those face to face meetings, and I think a lot of people do want to. Um, to do that but I guess companies are very conscious as well of the amount of money they can save on you know T&E and all of those sorts of things Absolutely. now with um, with Zoom and, and all the other tools we have at our disposal but no I agree with you both I think it's, it'd be nice to be able to get back to that more face-to-face in-person uh, yeah. interaction. Yeah agreed. Well thank you very much thank you Ian thank you Natalie for joining us. And um, Phil, thank you so much for for your time and um, and for this session. I hope it was, it was enjoyable a great pleasure. For everyone. It is. Yeah, looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Will and uh, Ian and Natalie for joining us as well. It's been brilliant. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye.